the Media Society Podcast. Welcome to the Media Society Podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard. I'm joined by two key figures from the world of broadcasting here to discuss media matters. This week, editorial freedom. Can journalists speak their minds when corporations are running the newsrooms? Equality. Do men and women in mainstream media command the same respect from audiences? And that old chestnut, the BBC licence fee. The government wants to reduce the penalty for those who don't pay, but will treating licence evasion like an unpaid parking ticket mean huge financial losses for the Beeb? Joining me around the table are Ben Rayner, executive producer for Al Jazeera English, responsible for the channel's European news operation, and the award-winning journalist, broadcaster, author and columnist for The Independent, Yasmin Alibi-Brown. In a CNN interview, Russia Today host Abby Martin said that while she enjoys complete editorial freedom, journalists on commercial networks risk being fired for not towing the company line. Are TV anchors really beholden to the corporations running their networks? Ben, you run a network, are they? Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say about Russia Today is, I mean, it seems to be the impressions of the of the anchors or two, two women anchors who, uh, one of whom kind of quit on air and the other one gave her position very forcibly, that they're entitled to, you know, express their opinions. You know, I, I run the European operation for a news channel. I don't expect my anchors to give their personal opinions. That's not what that's not what they're there for. They're there for, you know, reading the news, doing interviews, um, presenting the news. It's it's not about them giving giving their opinions, first of all. I mean, we've we've come to the age of the opinionated news channel with Fox and Russia Today and various other news channels, Al Jazeera, the BBC, Sky, would they wouldn't see their presenters as people who are there to give give opinions. That's that's not what presenters are there for. But do you think, Yasmin, for example, you wouldn't expect to see the chief executive of ITV on News at 10 grilled in the same way that George Ent- Entwistle, for example, was grilled by John Humphreys? Well, I think people, sh- they should be a much broader set of standards, I think. And everybody lies about freedom. Everybody in the West lies about how free we are because none of us is as free as we like to claim. So whether it's commercial pressures, who owns us, whether it's public service and the incredible nervousness about not to offend anybody. Uh, You know, I mean, we've just had a very good example today with Jeremy Bowen saying, you know, why do we not show the horrors of war anymore like we once did, even on the BBC? And and it's all about uh, taste. And so I think we lie about freedom. And probably the ladies on Russia today, too, must know somewhere deep d- down there are always lines. And you learn those lines. You have to. So do you think that they just didn't work within that inherent tension that's always going to be there in that relationship with their employer? I think they must. I, I just don't believe people cannot be aware at a very deep level. You know, and we as journalists, you be, you grow a kind of sense of what you can say and what you must say. And it's not always just the legal side that's in your head. Lots of other things are. I just think we're very dishonest about it. I mean, I thought one of the interesting things one of the women from Russia Today said when she was being interviewed by Piers Morgan on CNN was she was talking about the Western coverage of the build-up to the Iraq war and American networks and would probably include British networks as well, where everyone fell for the the sort of spiel that was coming out from the governments about the evidence over the Iraq war. Now, maybe less so in Britain. Clearly, there was big issues there with the BBC and the evidence of the Iraq war. But I think certainly in America, you know, certainly when the drums of war are beating and 
everyone gets carried away in a story, then you look back on it afterwards and you do question, you know, were we doing this properly? Were we doing our due diligence on the story? And, and I think with hindsight, journalists look back on stories and they're like, oh, did we really do a proper job on that story? But Yasmin, aren't the audience and the listeners complicit in this? So, for example, if I, you know, purchase The Guardian or The Times or whatever newspaper, I'm choosing the lens through which I want to look at the way the, the world event's happening. Clearly, they're going to report the facts, but they're going to report them in a way that I expect them to. Would that be a fair summary, that the audience are in on it as well? Well, there's the political angles. Political angles, when you work for a certain newspaper, you know where it stands politically, whereas the independent stands on both sides politically. So I've got, I can't believe this, a fellow columnist is Nigel Farage. I hope we never meet in the corridor, but here we are. So I think the political definitions are, are of newspapers are clear. With broadcasting, it's not made clear. There's this absolutely dishonest game called objectivity. Mm. And it is so dishonest. I wish we would, they would just stop playing it. There is nothing objective about the way news items are covered. Ben, I mean, I think there's yeah, there's an, an attempt at objectivity in in the broadcast media, but I think people don't realise the subliminal forces at play on them. I used to, I, I used to work in British TV news and uh, ITV, and then I moved to Al Jazeera, and it was it's a very interesting experience switching from one to another, and you you realise that there are pressures on you, whether the pressures are what's in the Daily Mail or what's in the newspapers or what other broadcasters are doing when you're working in a British in a British channel, and and even now, I will sit and watch British TV news or listen to British radio, and it, you get an inherently Western bias. You just you inevitably do because you're here in London, you're immersed in the British media, and the agenda is set by a largely right wing press uh, and a and a Western view of the world. So, do you feel free of that? Being Al Jazeera being a truly international news channel, you don't have that kind of Daily Mail-driven agenda. Not necessarily following Look, I'm not the politics. Sit, but... I'm not going to sit here and pretend that you know, none of that has an influence on me. Clearly, it does. It has an influence on everyone. But you know, I work for an international channel where decisions are made around the world, and quite often decisions are made in Doha about stories in other parts of the world, rather than decisions just being made in London or Atlanta or you know, or in New York. So you do get. And a do you feel that, you know, when stories. you're looking at the running order of all of your programmes, can you feel that influence, yeah. just a different perspective in terms of the stories they've selected that they haven't, the yeah. emphasis, etc.? Yeah, on the story selection, where the stories run in the running order, how big a particular story plays, you know, how you know, big do we play the Oscar Pistorius trial or something like that. These th happens all the time. But Ben, if you were really honest, mm. would you be able to, not you, but would the channel be able to do an investigative programme on Qatar's Islamicist presence. Would you really honestly be able to do that? Across the Middle East, Islam and we've done a story recently about Qatar's diplomatic spat with Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, etc. So that's a story we do. And we do stories, we've done stories about immigrant labour in um, Qatar and the working conditions. So, yeah, we, we do do those stories as well. Yasmin, do you think that the international media doesn't give the issue of immigration and emigration, as it would be, due perspective? Well, it gives it too much attention. It, in the, so far as the but British in, media, but what about international? But no, I think it's, this is European-wide, but only one story is told. Uh, Europeans forget, absolutely forget, that their entire history is one of taking other people's countries, not just migrating nicely 
and opening up a corner shop, but actually going there, often demolit, you know, devastating the landscape, destroying the population. Um, they don't think about that history. Today, they still feel, most white Europeans feel, they have an absolute right to travel where they wish, not even to have their luggage or the, you know, be stopped at airports for security checks. Yeah. Goodness me. And yet, those of us who don't happen to be white are getting squeezed and maligned by those same people. And do you think that the media is complicit in that, that it's largely to blame? Completely complicit. So what would you change? What would be different then if, if the media were to listen to you? Editors need to listen to people like me. Um, they need to see that their world is a very, uh, you know, not only driven by the right-wing press, but actually ahistorical and alarmingly ignorant. Ben, do you feel that pressure as a channel that's largely, you know, the head office is based in Doha, do you think there's some cultural sensibilities there that you have to manage, or is it purely, you know, what's the news agenda is driven by the news, as it were? No, I mean, the, there is no such thing as the news. It's not a, you know finite thing it is something that's up for debate and changes depending on your perspective on where you are in the world and what you regard as a story i mean we spend a lot of time having lively uh, debates about <laughs> what, what what the news is and people have very different perspectives about what the news is but we try and look at things from a different perspective but yeah it's very difficult because still you know the rest of the media is is in the west and you know i i'm a western white male and I, you know, I don't divorce myself from some of those the, the environment I'm do. in. And it becomes quite obvious sometimes. So, for example, of the many problems I have with the mail, one of the biggest problems I have is when they talk about house prices and how it's great when they rise. Well, that clearly is picking a side. It's aiming at the fact that most of their readers own their own property. But if you're like my wife and I, who are on the other side of that equation, yeah. rising house prices is not a good thing for us because it means that that first rung on the housing ladder is getting further and further away. And in fact, we'll move on from mutant capitalism to kind of mutant sexism, I think. Uh, the next topic of conversation is that Professor Mary Bader said that male presenters command more respect than their female counterparts. In a Radio Times piece challenging the role of women in the media, she writes, the fact that even now authority still seems to reside with men in suits and their deep voices. Professor Baird has been the target of abuse online based on her appearance. So is this a personal issue or is this revealing a more general prejudice against women in the media? Yasmin? I do think things are much, much better than when I started as a journalist. Um, I think we do now have incredibly powerful women um, not just presenters, but including presenters. We have editors, we have bosses, um, decision makers, which is extremely important, though it's been interesting and depressing recently that all the new appointments of the top hierarchy at the BBC have all been white men again. But, you know, there are exceptionally powerful women and not all women in power are nice people. Power does things to anybody. Of any gender. <laughs> of any, any <laughs> yeah. gender, any race. Um, so I'm not romantic about uh, women in power. But I do think Mary Beard has a point. It goes beyond the person. The, the personal attacks on her have been astonishing. And sometimes they've even come from ordinary TV critics. It's mm -hmm. not just trolls talking about how she looks when we never seem to mind, you know, how really quite ugly men come and present programmes and we learn to love them. Well, I declare interest as an ugly man, but... Uh... <laughs> no, you're not an ugly man, but there are some who are presenting programmes. I don't agree with her about the voice, though. 
you know, that you have to have a man's voice. I think on radio particularly, a very shrill voice, it irks. And many women, I mean, Jenny Murray, I mean, almost all our best women on radio have a very modulated but mm. not a shrill voice. And that's just the, the, the way the medium works, I think. But on other things, I'm completely with her. So, Ben, if you want to convey authority, do you want a man in a suit with a deep voice? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I agree with Yasmin here. I, th- I think the, the, the voice issue is a, is a bit of a red herring, that you, need a, you do need a kind of nice broadcast voice for radio. I think the, the, the big issue is about appearance and particularly age when it comes to men and women on TV. There is, you know, very well-documented issues of older women presenters being forced out and pushed out on, on channels. And that, that's a, a massive issue for TV, I think. Do you think TV has an obligation to kind of challenge society and say, no, you, you clearly the viewing figures will decline if we put an older woman on, but on the other hand, we're not going to pander to that prejudice and we will... The, the viewing figures will decline. Why, why do we think they will? Well, no, that, that's the mistaken perception on their part, isn't it? If that is the perception, I'm not sure whether they would decline, though. I think... You know, you've got to you've got to reflect the audience who's watching. So, Yasmin, do you think it is just blatant prejudice then that it's these old white men that are sitting in management positions hiring? They don't want to hire old women, as it were. Yeah, they wouldn't buy the Sun, but their values are not that different. Actually, that woman is what woman looks, not what woman thinks, what woman says. You know, it's interesting. I used to be on quite a lot, and as time's gone on, I haven't changed. I've got wiser, but there are fewer and fewer calls coming from television. And you do begin to realise that now you are in the, oh, she's too old camp. And once in a while, of course, they'll have Joan Bakewell and they'll think we're OK, Jack, but they're not, actually. Yeah, it's a kind of tokenistic <laughs> effort. What can we do to counteract that then? Clearly, you know, this podcast isn't going to change the world. But on the other hand, it does seem to me, you know, at first blush, there is something to be done here. There is. But, I mean, I'm on a commission which Harriet Harman set up a very good commission on older women. And it's not just about the media. It's about older women in work, older women who are carers and in work, you know, on very low wages. But there is a whole huge, huge issue of how older women face discrimination on every single level. It has been really interesting to go around talking to women around the country and just listening to their stories, how they have to live their lives and why they feel so neglected and almost hated by society who doesn't take their lives into account. And do you think in the day-to-day challenges of running the news channel is gender equality, equal representation of both genders in terms of presenting behind and in front of the camera, is that something that can sometimes get forgotten because you're chasing the, the stories or is it something that's foremost front of mind? I think it's front of mind when you're recruiting about representing your audience and having a mix. I actually find that women, when they come to looking for jobs in journalism in their early 20s, are much more focused, much more educationally successful than than young men are, who are slightly more vague in their career aspirations. And I get a lot of women in their early 20s who are looking to get into journalism. Now, maybe they, they feel there's a pressure to do that at a, at a young age, you know, and they're, and they're trying to get in there. But I, I find that, that men in their 20s are much less uh, employable, strangely. I'd be interested to know whether that, in 15 or 20 years' time, translates into a change in the workforce. And we mustn't forget that uh, at least some women have broken through. And clearly you run a television network. Do you find that the, the medium itself dictates what you can and can't cover? 
No, well, so Al Jazeera is split into half and half between news and programmes. So the news is a classic uh, news programmes that one would be used to, but but reported from different parts of the world. Uh, one of the things we pride ourselves on is reporting, local people reporting their stories in different parts of the world. We talk about the voice, the voiceless at Al Jazeera. We talk about looking at the global south and trying to turn stories on the head and see how a particular story affects um, the developing world in particular. So there's a lot of emphasis in our coverage on Africa, Latin America, the Far East, less emphasis on what's happening in Europe, although that's obviously a big part of what we cover. But we try and do things differently. There's no point in us being exactly like CNN or Sky or the BBC. People wouldn't watch us. We're trying to tell stories in a different way. That's true in both the news and in our programmes. And in our programmes there investigative programs and discussion programs you know one of the things we have is we are not beholden to advertisers we're not beholden to the ratings it's it's quite strange for me i talked about being itv and i moved to al jazeera i don't come in every morning and comb through the ratings to see how the, how the shows did the night before that's the kind of thing we used to do at itv and it, that dictates the type of stories you'll put on it's very much a kind of we put the stories out there and if people like them they'll come and watch them so it's we're not driven by ratings we're not right we must have oscar pistorius or celebrity or, or foxy foxy endless paper reviews no yeah you know, exactly. with all due respect to sky that's they're clearly trying to extend people's watching period isn't it i think we were discussing earlier that it's like 11 minutes that people watch a running yeah, news we, channel for we were saying that before we came in and, and news channels there was some research done a few years ago now but about the average viewing time on a news channel is about 11 minutes and and news channels their their viewing um, shape across the day is, or across weeks is, is spikes when there's a big story. And the secret for news channels, and this is something that Fox realised, is if they could get people to watch for longer, they would massively increase their audience. So they developed this sort of chat uh, format, which keeps the audience watching for longer. Because if you people generally will turn on a news channel and they'll watch until they feel like they've got the main stories and then they'll move away and go and do something else. It's about 10 or 12 minutes, yeah. isn't it? When people but if you feel... can get an audience member to stay for 18 minutes, you'll... You're double you'll, the reach. Yeah, well, you'll, I'll increase it by... You'll increase my it maths by, are off by, there, by, but... by 50%. <laughs> yeah. So and at Al Jazeera, we have a mix of news and programmes and actually, you know, what we'll find is that people will watch... Obviously, they'll watch a programme for half an hour or an hour. They won't always watch an hour's worth of news. Mm. Um, it's quite difficult to keep, keep an audience watching for an hour's worth of news, but they'll come in and out of it. But I hope nobody takes up Fox as an example of what a channel <laughs> no, not, should be. No, not at all. As, a, as what a channel. <laughs> I do watch be. it when I'm in America, but only for entertainment value. I don't think Glenn Beck's on it anymore, is he? But he was he was genuinely off his head, uh, yeah, no, they almost all are. entertainingly they, so. They all are, and I think when during the last Obama election, you know, it was extraordinary. The, lunacy of the thing but also it's what it's able to do with that lunacy you know to appeal to a population that seems in spite of being the greatest so-called greatest nation in the world singularly ill-educated ill-informed and easily led no visas to america then indeed <laughs> <laughs> MPs across Parliament have supported legislation that would make avoiding the licence fee a civil offence, taking minor offenders out of the criminal justice system. And whilst this may ease the burden on the courts, a BBC spokesman has said that just a 1% increase in evasion could lead to a whopping £35 million loss, which is the equivalent of 10 BBC local radio stations. Could the government's soft touch hurt the BBC financially, Ben? Clearly it could hurt the BBC, but it does seem slightly absurd that 
it's a criminal offence and the courts are clogged up with it. I can see both sides of this. Maybe the, the whole debate should move on in the way it, it has done in the last few days to re-examine how the BBC raises its money, that it, it's quite an old-fashioned uh, formula and the way people consume media these days is going to dictate how, how the BBC raises raises its money and clearly the iPlayer is the way forward for a lot of the BBC content and there is going to have to be some way of charging in a different way that the, the kind of one fixed £145, whatever it is, mm. um, whilst it's amazing value for money for the BBC, is going to have, the people are going to have to look at that model in a, in a different way because it's quite, seems to me, quite an outdated way of raising money. Yasmin, do you think it's a bit like a tapestry where we're pulling on one string here, but there's a risk that the whole thing might unravel? Yeah, I don't trust um, um, this government on the BBC at all. You know, I, everything they say and everything they do makes me feel very anxious. Do you think they're out to get the BBC? Yes, um, but the BBC itself has been um, extraordinarily irresponsible. But what they've not done is use their moments, small as they are, to say what the licence fee is doing. They've really been quite shy about that, you know. And also, maybe if people can't pay the whole lot at once. They should offer all kinds of, like banks do, you know, overdrafts. You can pay £5 uh, a month. For, I think for they a, do offer payment but schemes. But it's very, it, the message is, do you remember they used to have these awful adverts of vans going by? And, mm. and I, even I used to go and check, you know, whether... I did have a proper... Um... There's some very big theories on the internet now that TV licensed detective vans don't actually exist yes. and that they're, they're, they're deliberately constructed with. And it's, <laughs> but, it's a serious argument. You know, so I think there are, they could find a kinder and more, more kind of socially acceptable way of making it less painful. And I think I agree. But if you don't the... pay your council tax, you're, you might get the bailiffs at your door, but you're not going to get a criminal offence. Do you think that uh, council tax... I can ta see that, but I think the BBC's right to be scared that uh, uh, non-payment will increase. I think that's... Yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly, they, you know, I, 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 can, I can totally see where the BBC are coming from. They don't want to be in a situation where they're forced to take advertising, which w would disrupt one of the great parts of British life and what they do is fantastic and what they offer is fantastic and people don't appreciate what they're getting for the small amount of money. I mean, my my Sky subscription is, you know, it's two months for what is sort of £145 and you get the BBC for a whole year for that. Would you pay your licence fee if you weren't frightened of the detector van? If you don't mind me asking a personal question. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I really do value the BBC and I don't mind paying my licence no, fee. I don't, but, I don't but mind at all. If... I don't, for, the, you know, for what I get from the BBC, it's it's amazing value for money. It is, but I can also cancel my Sky subscription if I don't feel I'm getting the value, whereas I would get that TV licensing letter that would say, Mr Blanchard, you're on the database, you're going down if uh, you don't pay. There's a well, slight yeah. element of, uh, you yeah. know, of, uh, of uh, fear And there. also, there is such Menaces. poverty, such poverty mm. now in this country. It's clearly poor people are going to bear the brunt of this yeah. issue, isn't and that it? just seems to me unfair. So maybe they should be thinking about, you know, those below a certain income, not just older people should get a reduced licence fee or deferred payments because, you know, there are people here now in this country who cannot 
boil water. Do you think people should pay proportionately for their usage of the BBC? So if you're going to watch a Sherlock marathon, you might pay a little bit more than someone who just listens to that the news That would be quiz. so complicated. You know, it, would be, it would be impossible to enforce. So do but you... I do think you can say anybody below a certain income, or if you suddenly find yourself, you know, that you've fallen into that bracket. What, what a, there's a, it's free for pensioners, isn't it? Yes. Over, over, over 75. Over 75. Yes. But I'm saying that actually... The poverty is now hitting young No, I, I mean, I agree. It's, it's a sort of assumption that pensioners are inherently poor. Yes. <laughs> but it's not actually the case quite often. Yes. It's, but, you know, it's, it's the same way that sort of media sets up the pensioners as being terribly deserving, but, but the poor aren't, isn't it? If anyone suggested free TV for, for those on lower incomes, oh, it would be, it, it would be yes. outrageous. But, if, but for pensioners, it's perfectly acceptable. But those, it's the problem with the... some, a wealthy 78-year-old gets, yeah. it, gets it free. But, but any poll tax is going to be regressive by nature because mm. it's always going to sting the very poorest first. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, we all use the TV equally, but there again, we all use the same you know, public services equally and we don't pay the same there. It's not a fixed poll tax, is it? You pay according to the income that you... Mm. That you're in. I wonder whether they, we should consider something like that or maybe even abolishing the licence fee completely and just paying the BBC out of the general taxation fund. Well, the problem with that isn't that you then... It's not ring-fenced, is it? That's the whole, and the whole point. Of yeah. the... They'd be dependent on, on, well, ideological, actually, wings of both political parties and I don't think that would be right. So what is to be done then? I mean, I appreciate we all agree that the BBC is in an impossible position, but something has to be done. Clearly, we're going to we're tinkering with these things at the side, whether we talk about decriminalisation or whether we talk about pay-per-view or moving over to iPlayer. How is it actually going to work? What do you think is going to happen in the end? Is it, we're just going to limp along with the same licence fee settlement, maybe a, a bit knocked off and we all carry on? I think maybe they need a more slightly more nuanced way of raising money rather than the one flat fee payment. Maybe there is a basic thing you pay for and then on top of that you pay for some other things i, I don't really see why a license fee and non-payment couldn't just be a civil offense and that just move forward like that it's the same for many other what do you think Yasmin? i mean for. just on the straight kind of yes no if you don't mind me asking do you think that non-payment of the license fee should be a criminal offense as it is now because non-payment of other fines and other taxes aren't a criminal offense if you don't pay them no they shouldn't but i do realize that non-payment would increase if it wasn't. And that's just going to have to be a fact of life? No, so I think they should be thinking much more clearly about maybe keeping it as it is, but offering all kinds of other safety valves, arrangements. So before that point comes of the law being used, there are lots of options. At the moment, it's just, it's too simple, as as Ben said, it's so straightforward. Needs to be more nuanced. I mean, Ben might, without kind of going into individual shows and naming individual producers, if I go on a commercially produced show, it's always leaner, shall we say, in the production team than than the BBC equivalent. And I wonder whether you've noticed that. I can often see a, you know, if I go on a commercial show, there might be one producer and a presenter and someone else, whereas the BBC, that a similar show of that nature, might have maybe double or even triple the number of people no, I mean, working I've, on it. I've never worked at the BBC, so I can't. Say, I mean, I know when I... You'll have heard, though, from yeah, colleagues. Everyone always says that about <laughs> commercial operations are much leaner when the BBC sends loads more people. I mean, I think, to be fair to the BBC, I think it's got slightly out of hand that every time there is a big event, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup or something, there is a sort of headcount of the number of BBC technicians who are sent to cover the Olympics or all these events. And it's like the BBC sent 457 people to Glastonbury. I mean, actually, I seem to remember the number they sent to... Uh, the last World Couple with the Olympics, I was like actually quite surprised it was so few. 
Do you think they're a victim of their own success insofar as because they've got so many networks and so many different shows that are looking for yeah, different and people, angles and people, takes and presenters and so people on? People forget it... the number of outlets they've actually got. So they'll look at the number of people who are on a story and you've got to remember that they've got to feed multiple radio stations, multiple TV stations, their website, which is, you know, probably for a lot of people, the website is the number one way they interact with the BBC these days. Do you think the BBC's not good enough at kind of standing up for itself? I think it's very hard. I do think it's very hard. But I think it should. I think it should stay. I don't know what happens behind the scenes. But like I said, they themselves got themselves into a mess big time by giving themselves the kind of money they did. The ordinary people at the BBC don't get that kind of money, but everybody thinks everybody works at the BBC is getting all these fat cat salaries. No, the worker bees are tighter and tighter, working longer and longer hours. I was there last night and I even said to them, God, you're looking exhausted and feeling, you know, the burden of what the hierarchy's done again and again, actually. I, I have a lot of faith in Tony Hall. I hope, you know, he turns things around. And I think he, he will stand up for the BBC. But the assault on it is so relentless. From all comers. Just before we close, would you like to share with uh, our listeners your contact details? We normally kind of let everyone know our Twitter handles and all of that kind of thing. So, Yasmin, what are oh you God, on Twitter? I, I am on Twitter, but don't ask me what I am. That's <laughs> disgraceful that you don't know. And you're the first guest that doesn't know that, actually. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, no. God, what is it? At Y and then underscore alibi. That's correct, yeah. Yes. I knew that and I was going to say yeah. that. I did genuinely know that, but you got that one yourself. I'm ben, ben Rayner, uh, AJE. Excellent. And do you do you tweet corporately or is that your personal Twitter account? Both. I mean, I don't have a separate yeah. personal one. It's interesting, isn't it? The kind of melding of the professional and the mm. personal now with social media. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. And for those that want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Paul W.R. Blanchard. But of course, more importantly, please do follow the Media Society at The Media Society, and do consider joining us. Go to our website, themediasociety.com, where for just five quid a month, you get access to the great and the good and cutting-edge thought too. Lots of events, lots of learning, lots of networking. Thank you for listening to The Media Society podcast. The associate producer was Michelle Schofield. My name's Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!